anxious father, we just want to make much of Jesus this morning. As we worship and hear this word proclaimed, we pray that Jesus would be front and center, the focus of our attention. And so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to overrule and overwhelm, overrule and overwhelm what is said and what is heard, so that both are of and from and by you. Use your word, this means of grace, to make Jesus all the more known and transform our lives. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So John the Baptist was a pretty incredible character, a pretty incredible figure here in the Bible. He hangs out in the wilderness. He dresses in what I would consider to be really uncomfortable clothing, well behind the the fashion of the times, right? Not keeping up with the the catwalk, whatever that means. Wearing his leather belt, his camel-haired clothing, eating bugs and, you know, dip him in a little honey. It'll go down a little quicker. John the Baptist bursts onto the scene here, and in every one of the gospel accounts, the, the gospel accounts begin with, with John the Baptist in some way. He's this incredible figure. He's controversial. He's, he's divisive, and he's true. Now, John called his audience in his ministry to, to repent because the kingdom of heaven was near. And one of the things that strikes me the most about John the Baptist is is that in all of that he did, he knew who he was. He knew who he was, and more to the point, he knew who he wasn't. It's striking to me because we humans have an amazing capacity toward delusions of grandeur. We have an amazing capacity to think more of ourselves than we ought. We have an amazing capacity to claim more than we ought. And yet John, with crowds clamoring around him to repent and be baptized, he's got a fruitful ministry, very popular. John, with religious authorities demanding that he answer to them. John, with his own band of disciples, of anyone who could have messed it up, so to speak, And thought more of himself, certainly John and his popularity could have, but John never lost sight of who he was. He never forgot what God gave him to do. He knew himself to be the prophet of preparation, pointing towards Jesus. And when John the Baptist has the opportunity to point towards Jesus and away from himself, he does exactly that. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the way, and just sort of a side note, you'll notice that all the way back in in verse 19 of John chapter 1, you've got this, this framework of time set up by John the author. There is that day in verse 19 that uh, leaders from Jerusalem came and they challenged John the Baptist. And then in verse 29, we're told the next day John saw Jesus coming. And then in verse 35, we're told the next day. And then in verse 43, we're told the next day, all of this, John, the author of the gospel, is marking time to get to chapter 2, verse 1. 
on the third day. And I make, I, I'm mentioning this because I think it's important for us to realize John, the author of the Gospel, John, opens his Gospel, his account of Jesus' life, by talking about the incarnation of the eternal Son. And then he begins to put the pieces of the puzzle together to reveal who it is that is the incarnation of the eternal Son. And so all along the way in chapter 1, as we mark by days, all along the way we see Jesus being proclaimed in some way to be the Messiah. And then in chapter Chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding in the feast in, the, in Cana in Galilee. And there, Jesus did what? He did a sign that manifested his glory, revealed himself to be the Messiah. That was a side note that perhaps me and about three other people were interested in. We'll go back to the text at hand. Jesus sees John, or John sees Jesus coming and he says, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. John, after he baptized Jesus, he saw Jesus and he positively proclaims Jesus to be the Lamb of God. And regarding this testimony and regarding this identification of Jesus, I think we need to recognize a couple of things because they become very important for us. And first, we must recognize that this proclamation of Jesus as the Lamb of God. It came out of what John himself had received from the Father. John states here in uh, chapter 1, verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what John saw when he baptized Jesus. He, he says again in verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So John's identifying of Jesus, his identification of Jesus as the Lamb of God, was not something that he discovered naturally. It was not something that he just sort of puzzled through and, and figured out. It was not something that he discovered through rigorous study, the scientific method, or even by accident. John's knowing Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Messiah, came through revelation, revelation from God himself. It was received. And this creates an important point for us because we must realize that recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, recognition of Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Son of God, our Savior and Lord, does not come naturally, but supernaturally. And I'll come back to that in a few minutes, but I, that's something we really have to hold on to. The second thing we, we need to recognize about John's proclamation here, calling Jesus the Lamb of God, is that it really is a very unusual title. John stated that he knew Jesus to be the Lamb of God because of the descent of the Spirit at the baptism. And not only then did God reveal this to John, but the descent and the abiding of the Spirit itself upon Jesus was fulfillment of Messianic prophecies. In Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61, the prophet says, uh, on behalf of God, Behold, I have put my spirit upon this servant, this chosen agent, to do these things. John's connecting this title, Lamb of God, and he's connecting the action who takes away the sins of the world with this concept of Messiah. And he sees Jesus walking down the road, and he says, There he is. He's fulfilled all these things as Messiah. He's the Lamb of God. 
The Lamb of God, then, is, for John, a messianic title, even though you can't find a direct reference in the Old Testament to the Messiah being the Lamb of God. And I know some of you may disagree with me and say, but Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 points quite clearly to Messiah as the chosen Lamb, spotless. And I'd say, yes, you're right, but it's not a direct reference to the Messiah being the Lamb of God. And so this is the, the third thing we need to realize about what John's saying. In calling Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John most likely spoke better than he knew. Right? This happens sometimes. It happens all the time in college football. Anytime an analyst uh, picks Clemson to upset Alabama, in the, they spoke better than they knew, right? John most likely spoke better than he knew as he most likely did not realize what it would actually mean for Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In his testimony, John recognized Jesus to be the Messiah, God's agent of redemption and judgment who would deal with the sins of the whole world. But, but, like, but John, like the earliest disciples of Jesus, did not have the full picture of what dealing with the sins of the world would mean. John, like the earliest disciples of Jesus, didn't have a concept of a Messiah taking away the sins of the world through crucifixion. Didn't have a concept of Messiah conquering sin, death, and evil through death and resurrection. And in speaking better than he knew, and in calling Jesus the Lamb of God, John does help us interpret and understand the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus as the Lamb who is spotless as the atoning sacrifice for sin, through whom forgiveness from God and life with God is made available to all by grace and through faith. John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Messiah. And he did this because it was his mission and his purpose to point towards Jesus, to call attention to Jesus, to lead people to Jesus. And you know what? He did exactly that. At least two people who heard John's testimony, responded as they went to him. Now, a little bit earlier, I said that John's knowledge of Jesus as Messiah was something he received. But there's a little bit more to this. And I think John the Baptist here in, in the Gospel of John, and I think Andrew, as we'll see, I think what we find here is an, the establishment of a pattern for how Jesus' followers, his disciples, are to live. Let me flesh this out and, and, and see if you can follow with me if I'm making any sense other than to myself, which sometimes. It's a, it's a frightening thing sometimes when the, the conversation that makes the most sense is the one that's going on in your own head, but you're 97% sure that if you said those things out loud to your wife, she would look at you like you're crazy and call the police. You know what I'm talking about, Cliff? Okay, good. So here's the pattern that I think we see established, right? Knowledge of Jesus is received, but then Jesus is himself personally encountered, and then that knowledge of Jesus is to be given away. So Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This must be received. John the Baptist received that from the Father in heaven. But Jesus must be encountered personally. John the Baptist looked him eye to eye, baptized him, saw the Spirit descend and remain, knew Jesus himself to be the Lamb of God. And then that must be given away. 
So after John received the one upon whom you see, after he encountered Jesus, he then gives that knowledge away, saying, this is the one. If we look again, we see that, that John had to receive this. We see that John had to encounter Jesus himself, and we see then that John, in fulfillment of his mission, in fulfillment of his ministry, said, don't look at me, look at him. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And the crazy thing is to me, not crazy, but, but the, the awesome thing is, in that very passage we read this morning, we see this pattern repeated in Andrew. And if you read the pages of the New Testament, you see this pattern repeated throughout the New Testament. Look what happens uh, for, for Andrew. The, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. It's consistency in John's testimony of who Jesus is. He doesn't change it. He is the Lamb of God, and two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Notice what's happening here. John proclaims, he reveals the identity of Jesus. His two disciples receive that testimony, and they go to encounter Jesus for themselves. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. In what reads to us as a, as a sort of awkward conversation, these two disciples of John the Baptist are seeking an audience with Jesus, a personal encounter, one that requires more time and space than just standing at the side of the road would allow. They want to sit at his feet. They want to hear his teaching. They want to personally encounter Jesus. And we must notice that Jesus invites them to come and be with him. John then tells us what happened next. Having received testimony about Jesus, having uh, personally encountered Jesus, Andrew then goes and he gives out what he'd received. John tells us he went and he got his brother Simon. He took his brother Simon, proclaimed, we've found the Messiah, took his brother Simon to meet the Messiah, and Jesus encounters him there. Andrew received, Andrew encountered, Andrew gave. It's a pattern of discipleship. This is a pattern for discipleship. See, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And understanding and knowing Jesus to be that Lamb of God, the way, the truth, and the life, that must be received. He then must be personally encountered. And then that must be given. Now let's be absolutely clear about something. God gives us the mission to follow this pattern. Jesus, as he, uh, after his crucifixion and his resurrection, as he prepares to ascend into heaven, he says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, I've given you, I, all authority has been given unto me, therefore go into all the nations, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this pattern that is established with John the Baptist, with Andrew, and is carried out throughout the pages of the New Testament, that is the very thing that Jesus gives for his church to do. Make disciples. That which you have received, give out. Let's be absolutely clear about that. But let's also be absolutely clear about something else so that we are not deluded into thinking of ourselves more than we ought. 
While God has given us this pattern to follow in making disciples, it is ultimately God who is the responsible agent for salvation, not us. A little bit later in the Gospel of St. John, Jesus will say, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. God, in His grace, in His kindness, and in, in the way that God has chosen to work within this world, the reality is that God uses human voices and human speaking to reveal Jesus to others. That's what He did with John the Baptist. That's what He did with Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. That's what He does with the disciples in the book of Acts of the Apostles. The reality is that God uses human voices and human speaking to reveal Jesus to others. St. Paul wrote, How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? In his grace and in his mercy, God uses our words, our giving of testimony, our giving away what we've received. He uses those things so that he begins to work and can work in the hearts and the minds of our audience by the power of the Holy Spirit, giving them life to make Jesus known as Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away not generically the sin of the world, but my sin and your sin. And this truth that God is the one who saves does two things for us. One, it makes our testimony and witnessing all the more important and necessary because God uses our words. And second, it relieves us, it frees us from being the agent responsible for a person's response to Jesus and their salvation. As followers of Jesus, we are to give out what we've been given. We're to call and lead people toward a personal encounter with Jesus by speaking words of truth. And when I'm talking about a personal encounter with Jesus, I'm talking about simply a person knowing Jesus for themselves as Lord and Savior. A third party cannot bring salvation to you. When I was a senior in high school, I took geometry. And uh, uh, an English teacher in our, our, earlier our earlier service was surprised that I took geometry as a, as, a, as a senior in high school. And I said, well, I took algebra one, algebra two, then trigonometry, and then geometry. And she was astounded to know that I took things in such weird order. And I reminded her that I went to public high school in Kansas. <laughs> and that solved all the question, right? But I took geometry, right? And geometry, my apologies to math teachers in this classroom, in this classroom, in this, in this sanctuary this morning, but geometry is an abomination before the Lord. <laughs> Mosquitoes, cats, and geometry, Becky, I'm sorry. I had to, you can't naturally know geometry. You have to receive it, right? And then after you receive it, you have to personally encounter it, right? Well, that's where things hit the skids for me. I received it, but I didn't bother to personally encounter it. I just cheated off of somebody. <laughs> so I got my homework done, and I got A's, but when it came time to take the test where I had to reveal what I personally encountered and had received, when it came time for me to give out what I'd gotten, I failed because I hadn't personally encountered it. A third party cannot know geometry for you, and a third party cannot know Jesus for you either. And so you have to have this personal encounter. One cannot know Jesus as Lord and Savior on behalf of someone else. 
John pointed Jesus out. Two of the disciples went to meet Jesus. Andrew met Jesus and brought his brother to encounter Jesus for himself. Soon after this, in John's gospel, Jesus will stop at a well in Samaria near Sychar. She'll, he will talk with a Samaritan woman. She will encounter Jesus. She will tell the people of the town about Jesus, bring them to encounter him, and then they will say to her, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That has to happen. John heard from God and met Jesus personally. Andrew heard from John and met Jesus personally. Simon Peter heard from Andrew and met Jesus personally. The pattern goes on. The pattern continues. Every one of us sitting here today have heard from someone else about Jesus. Then I pray, encountered him personally. But have we continued on to the next step? Have we given out that which we've received? Who could fill the empty seats this morning? We all know people who need to encounter Jesus and know him as Lord and Savior, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We all know people to whom we need to give that which we've received. A 2007 survey in England found that the strongest motivating factor for a non-church attender to visit a worship service would be a personal invitation from a family member or a friend. In that same year, uh, but in America, a different survey found that 82% of the folks who responded and who were not regular attenders of a church were receptive to attending church if invited by a friend. The numbers are a little bit dated. I would imagine the numbers themselves have probably changed. The trend probably has not. 82% of folks responded saying that they would be receptive to meeting with Jesus if invited by a friend. That same survey from America in 2007 found that only 21% of church-going Christians invited someone to church in the previous year. Super Bowl is on a Sunday this year. The Monday after, what are people in the office going to talk about? Super Bowl. What if we treated every Monday, the morning after we meet with Jesus in worship, as a post-Super Bowl Monday? What if we talked about Jesus as much as we talked about college football? What if we talked about Jesus as much as we talked about our favorite or our despised presidential candidate? What if we talked about Jesus as much as we talked about our favorite television show? Who could fill the empty seats this morning? We all know people who need to encounter Jesus and know him as Lord and Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you've received, if you've encountered, have you given? It's as simple as being like John and Andrew. It's as simple as pointing toward Jesus the pattern of discipleship, the pattern of life following him. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That knowledge must be received. He must be encountered, and that must be given. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.